Okay, if I could get your attention. Uh, yeah, let me just say, you, you may have noticed that uh, there's no hard copies of next week's questions on the table. I have to apologize, that's all my fault. But uh, you can get those questions off of the uh, website, and you can also email me and ask for them, and I'll send them to you uh, by email. Uh, so if you want them, you know, you'll be able to get them. And next week, we'll actually have the hard copies back on the table. So today, uh, in Lesson 2 of a 10-part series, 10-part series on the parables of Christ, we're looking at the wheat, the parable of the wheat and the tares. You can find it in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, the parable of the wheat and the tares. <clears throat> and in the parable, it's the classic story of good versus evil. And in this parable, you see good coexisting at the same time as evil. And it's really a dilemma, isn't it? And this good versus evil I, I saw in this movie clip I thought would be appropriate, be perfect to illustrate that. Yay! <laughs> good wins! I thought that would be the perfect movie clip because it really reminds me of today's parable because it's in, in today's parable you'll, you'll see that uh, it's the dilemma, the question about evil and, and how evil can coexist with good and, and why a good and holy and powerful God would allow evil in the world. And you see in this movie clip, the very first scene, what do you see? The pure innocence of the bear cub, you know, the, the goodness of it, this idealistic existence that they make you feel, kind of like the Garden of Eden or something. Uh, but something is amiss. There's a problem. That problem is the cub is alone. The bear cub is alone. The one thing the cub must have is its mother. Without the mother, the cub is in trouble. We all know that. That close relationship gives the cub everything he needs from his mother. But without the mother, there is danger, there's trouble, and possible death. And the alienation of the cub is like the fall of man in the Bible and, and its rebellion against God. Man has alienated himself from God. The one thing that mankind needed the most, he has lost. That close, intimate fellowship with his creator. And so man is in trouble. The alienation of man is where all the problems come from. In that relationship with God, the problems are solved. Apart from Him, we got nothing but problems. And everything that's gone wrong with the world is because of that. Uh, the cub, as soon as uh, we see the cub by himself, suddenly here comes the lion. And the cub's got all kinds of problems. His world is upside down. He's in danger. Evil is after him. Uh, it, it, it came out of nowhere. He didn't expect it. He didn't expect that line. It came out of nowhere. It was a shock to him. And so the rest of that clip, what's going on? It's a struggle for survival, a struggle. And why? Because the alienation from the one person the cub most needs 
is not there. He's alienated from it. So you have the series of struggles and problems that's just like life. You have the chase. You're being chased, and you can't get away. You try to get away from life's problems, but you can't. Balancing on the tree limb, trying to find a place to hide, a place of refuge, what happens? It breaks. He falls into the raging river. Now he's got a bigger problem. Now he's got the problem of the river and the lion. And so he's fighting the current, slipping on the rocks, finally has to face the lion. And you can see the physical pain that he's going through, you know, and the lion waxing, all the blood on his face and everything. But, of course, what happens in the end? How does it end? And this is why our life is going to end as well. How does it end? Saved by the mother bear who intercedes on his behalf, just like God does for us. In the end, no matter how much struggle and pain and suffering and fear that we've had during life, God intervenes on our behalf and gives us the one thing we need, that relationship with him. And then you see at the end of the clip, all the rejoicing and the gladness and mom is here, hooray, you know, the, the reunion. And that's what will happen at the resurrection. You know, all of our troubles will be over, reunited with God the Father, and we'll have it made. And you see that in today's parable. Uh, and the, the cub, think about the cub. He thought he was doing fine. He was off on his own. Freedom, independence. He did not realize what trouble he was in. Right? And that's, what, that's the way life is. He would not have realized how much he needed his mother if he hadn't gone through that painful experience. And so in today's parable, it's just like that. You have the coexistence of good and evil at the same time in the parable. And naturally, people look at that, you know, they look at the world we live in and they go, if there is a good and holy and all-powerful God, why would he allow evil in the world? And yet in the parable, you'll see that when the people say, let's stamp out evil, let's pull up the weeds, what does the landowner, what does God say? No, allow it, allow it to grow with the wheat. The weeds to grow with the wheat. Allow good and evil to grow up together until the end. And, of course, you have the, the great harvest and the separation of the wheat and the tares. And all the problems are over. So... That's what today's uh, parable is about. Uh, let me give you, you know, as in all the parables, there's always a problem. There's always an issue that provoked the parable. And in this case, what, what have you got? The problem is that Jewish expectations of the Messiah in the first century were that the Messiah would come in and be this great deliverer. And they would, he would restore Israel to a prominent position of power like they had, say, during the time of King Solomon. They would have peace and prosperity, no longer being ruled by these evil Gentile rulers, the Romans. They would be delivered from that. And, and in a kind of a nationalistic religious sense, they were looking at the Messiah to come do all these things, to overthrow Rome, set them back up where they thought they should be, give them their 
independence and their peace and their prosperity. So that's their, that was their conception of the Messiah that all the prophets in the Old Testament talked about. And that's who they were looking for, to restore Israel. So when Jesus came, he was a completely different guy. And what'd they do then? This isn't the guy we're looking for. They rejected him. They rejected him because he was not the political military deliverer they wanted. Jesus did not come with an army to enforce his will like they wanted him to. He did not use his power as God to force the kingdom on anybody. Jesus' weapon that he came with was love. Really? Can you imagine meeting Hitler or somebody, you know, the, somebody, Saddam Hussein or whoever, people we fought wars with and said, well, we brought our weapons. Well, where are they? What's, I'm going to love you. You know, you go, well, that wouldn't work. So in the same way, Jesus was rejected. That didn't make sense to the world. Jesus' weapon was love. So he came as a suffering servant who sacrificed himself out of love, but the world he came into had no concept of this. And they were confused by it. Even his closest disciples, you know, the 12, the apostles and the people that were following him around, they were confused. They expected him to set up the kingdom of God by restoring Israel as well and end all the evil, end the hypocrisy, and end all the unbelief. Jesus, if you're the Messiah and you came to set up the kingdom, why is everything still messed up? What is going on? They didn't get it, and I, and I understand why. I, I wouldn't have got it either. How could he be the Messiah who came to usher in the kingdom, yet evil continued? And today in the church, you get the same questions. People are asking them all the time. And even in the church, what do, we, what do you want? What do I want? We want the perfect church. If we see something wrong with our church, we want to weed it out. We want our church to be pure and perfect, right? But, of course, what's the problem with the church? It's got people. You know? And so, you know, somebody, you know, the joke, they said, you know, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Right? And so... Right now, even in the church, we know there's evil out in the world, but even in the church, there's evil. There's hypocrites. There's fakes. There's pretenders, right? And man, is that confusing. I thought this was the church. What are those people doing here? And of course, you really experience this, and I, and I bet a lot of you, of course, have done this. When you serve on committees, like if you're on the elder committee or the deacons or this or that committee, serving in the church, you know, after a few weeks of those meetings where the, these people have these crazy ideas and disagree on everything, you go, who are these people? You know, <laughs> and you get upset. So, I mean, that's our experience, and we wonder today, you know, What's going on? And what does the world say about the church? They say, what about the hypocrites in the church? You know? So, I mean, that, this is the, the, the questions. And the, and the parable of the wheat and the tares really gives a great answer to, the, to all those questions. The kingdom of God, in just summary, what this parable is going to say, 
The kingdom of God has come in Christ. God offered the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus came offering it. And he has planted the good seed. The good seed being the believers that actually believe in Jesus as their Savior. But at the same time, evil will coexist with good for a period of time. Since he was rejected by the nation, rejected by so many people, God's plan was is to have a period of time where Jesus would be available. He'd be offered to everybody over an extended period of time to come and be saved. And so that period of time is between, of course, the first coming of Christ and the second coming. All right? So evil will coexist with good for that period of time. And amazingly, as I said before, God's will is to allow it. God has got this plan that's way greater than anything we can understand. And he knows that it's actually good for us, like it was good for that bear cub, that there be evil in the world. And that's shocking. It's upsetting. But that's what this parable is about. And remember, God doesn't cause it. God allows it. And there's a higher purpose for it. And so at the appointed time, though, the good news and what we live for, what we look forward to, is that at the appointed time of God, at the harvest in the, in the parable, that Christ will come back, he'll separate the wheat from the tares, and he'll set up his kingdom where no evil exists and righteousness prevails. And we look forward to that. And that's the encouragement that he's giving to his disciples through this parable. Now, just real quick, the wheat and the tares, if you're like me, uh, originally you're going, what is a tear? I've never heard, you know, what is that? I can tell from the parable it's not good, but what is it? Well, amazingly enough, you're talking to an old wheat farmer. <laughs> the only one that believes that is my wife who's sitting back there, and a few of you that actually went up to this farm we owned, and we actually did for about five or six years. We had 1,000 acres planted in wheat. And fortunately, I'm no longer a wheat farmer because <laughs> I found out all about floods and pestilence and diseases and, <laughs> and insects and everything else. But uh, here's the deal. We planted winter wheat, and it grew up, and it looked like this green grass initially. And uh, the manager of the farm came and said, well, we need to use a pesticide. I said, uh, you know, what's that? So, well, we need to spray this stuff to kill bugs, but we also need to uh, spray this weed killer to kill the ryegrass. And I said, well, I don't see any ryegrass. He said, that, that's it there. The ryegrass in its infant stage like that looks exactly like the wheat. It looks exactly like it. And it grows up with it in the field until the harvest, about two weeks before the harvest, the wheat buds out this big head of grain. And then you can distinguish the wheat from the tares, from the, from the ryegrass. It's very obvious then. But as it's young and as it's growing, you can't tell the difference. You, just, you can't tell it by the naked eye. And so that's why this is such a great parable. His audience would understand this agricultural story because they, it was an agricultural economy. 
And they knew about agriculture. So he told them this story that they understood, a worldly story, so that they could then understand a spiritual truth that they did not understand. That they did not understand. That's what these parables are about. And so Jesus told this. And so he's going to start off in verse 24 by saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So this is all about what the kingdom of heaven at that point in time was. So what is it? Uh, and, and let me just say, you know, when you think of the kingdom of heaven, because it's used many different ways in the Gospels, it, the, the easiest definition for the kingdom of heaven is God's rule and reign. And so if God rules and reigns in your heart, then that's the kingdom of heaven in your heart, within you, Jesus says. Jesus was the kingdom of heaven. God sent him in to set it up. So they looked at Jesus, and Jesus in his sermons, and also John the Baptist would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. See, it's available. The reign and rule of God is offered to you. And to the extent that he rules your life, he is within your heart. The kingdom of God is within you. And in the future, when Christ comes back, and you have the harvest, and the, and the setting up of the full kingdom of God, they'll fully realize, will fully realize the whole benefit of the kingdom where evil is done away with and only righteousness dwells. So everything will be made right then at the, at the harvest that's talked about in the parable. So what is the kingdom of God currently like? Well, number one, it's clear that the kingdom of God has been planted in that sense. The good seed has been planted, and the kingdom is growing. It's growing. The kingdom of God is growing. And what do we mean by that? The seed has been sown, and it's been sown all over the world, and it is progressively growing. You know, when you look at the history of the church, in Acts chapter 1, you've got 120 Christians, 120 believers, in Acts chapter 1. You can see it there in verse 15, Acts 1.15. Then when the Spirit comes in Acts 2, you get 3,000 more. A couple days later, 5,000 more after that. By the end of the first century, that was around 32, 30, 33 A.D., by the end of the first century, you had hundreds of thousands of people all over the Mediterranean world that were Christians. And by that 312, when Christianity finally became legal, you had at least 3 million Christians. And then, of course, now, supposedly, we have 1.5 billion Christians, professing Christians. So, yeah, the kingdom of God is growing. God planted it. Jesus came into the world. He planted it. And it has been growing ever since. But secondly... Here's the second truth that he, that he tells you in verse 25. He says, while men were sleeping, so while the good guys were sleeping, the enemy, the adversary, came and sowed tares, sowed weeds also among the wheat and went away. One of the books I read said this actually happened in the first century and the Romans passed a law against it because if you had a competitor 
you know, in the wheat business or whatever, or somebody you didn't like and wanted to get revenge or wanted to shut them down, you'd slip into their field and plant all this bad seed and ruin their crop. So they'd understand this. So the, this adversary comes in and plants the, the tares, the weeds, in the guy's field. So here's the, here's the principle. While the kingdom of God is growing, there is aggressive opposition. There is aggressive opposition in the world against the kingdom, against the church. We know that. We have no doubt about that. That's obvious. And the Bible says that that enemy, this adversary, is sneaky. He's stealthy. He's malicious. And he brings in this new ingredient that Jesus' disciples and really nobody expected, which is good and evil. There's going to be evil in the world. There's going to be evil in the church. And it's going to coexist while the kingdom is growing. But then separated much later when Jesus comes back. The third element in verse 26, but when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And so the kingdom is growing even though it is an imperfect mixture of wheat and tares. So you, the world we live in and the church we belong to is an imperfect mixture of the wheat and the tares. Naturally, like the disciples in verse 27 through 29, we want to purify the church. We try to do that. That's what we're about. But you never succeed. You never succeed. And the world, all the humanistic view in the world is that, oh, yes, we're improving. The world is getting better. People are getting better with all the medical knowledge and technology. The human race is proceeding. And eventually, all bad things will be gone. Really? Think about that. What did they say about World War I? The war to end all wars. <laughs> that didn't work out. There will never be an end to wars. There isn't any war that can end all wars. You know? And that's what he's saying in the parable. And the same thing in the church, which is kind of a shocker. Because you expect the church to be pure. But he's revealing that that's not going to happen. So initially the wheat and tares appear to be the same, but eventually when they mature, you'll see, then see the difference. So eventually the difference will be brought out and they will be separated. And, and think about it. There's plenty of good people in the world and plenty of hypocrites in the church. So when you think, okay, you've got the church and then you've got the world, well, the fact is you've got all kinds of very moral, hardworking, good people in the world that aren't in the church. And at the same time, you've got a lot of people who are in the church who are fakes, who are hypocrites, just pretenders. So you've got this situation in the world today where you can't really tell who's who. And so his followers say, let's pull up the tares. And the landowner, in this case Jesus, says, no, don't pull them up because you don't know which is which. You can't tell. And you might damage the church. So Jesus' concern is not to separate the wheat and tares now. That's not his concern. Jesus' concern is that none of the good harvest be lost. He's more 
and, and he's, has, his view is more to protect us and keep us in the church and growing than it is to keep them out or to do something about them, okay? So also imagine and realize there's also weeds to be saved, right? There's people out there, there are currently weeds that will eventually be saved, right? And so that needs time for that to happen. And so in verse, uh, well, let me give you an example of this, this concept of the hypocrites or that people within the church. A, a very well-known person that you're all familiar with, and I, and I, I just read this in, in his autobiography or an excerpt from it, Bill Bradley. Remember Bill Bradley, the great basketball player? When he was in college, he professed Christ as his Savior, and he was a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. But after he was in the NBA for a while, and then later, of course, a senator, he realized that wasn't politically, none of that was politically correct. So he just changed. And now in his, his book, he says, uh, now I'm also uh, involved in Islam and Buddhism and whatever else. <laughs> you know? Well, he sure looked good back there in college. Who knew? Yeah, see, only God knows hearts. We don't know. We can't judge. And, and think about the reality of it. If we were to make lists today, think of your church, okay, let's get together, and everybody make their own private list about who should be in and who should be out. What would happen? All the lists would be different. All your good buddies would be on the good list. You know, it, you wouldn't be able to figure it out. And that's Christ's point. Don't damage the church. He's just concerned about the, the, the wheat. He's not concerned about the tares yet. Okay? So that's the reality of it. And so in verse 30 it says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in, at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. So eventually this will all be taken care of. And evil will be destroyed. We worry about evil now and why it's here. But then it will be destroyed. God's going to take care of it. So you've got two stages he just described here. The period of growth to maturity. And the, and the second period is that decisive, complete intervention at harvest that will separate good and evil. And in between... You have the growing of both the wheat and the tares. They coexist uncomfortably, but they coexist and grow up together. And that's that period of time that we're in. So just a few more things about this concept of the hypocrites in the church, because I know it really bothers some people. Uh, and by the way, Billy Graham said <laughs> that 70% of those that were saved in his ministry came from churches. <laughs> Think about that. 70% of the people that were saved in his ministry were church members. <laughs> Something to think about. So what about the hypocrites in the church? Because you're going to be asked that if you hadn't already. I'm asked that all the time. Well, wait, you know, first thing I think of, well, wait a minute. You got hypocrites at school. You got hypocrites at the bank. 
hypocrites at the country club. You still go there. It doesn't keep you away from the bank or the country club or, you know. So what's the deal? Hypocrites are everywhere. And even the church is not immune. And of course, as I said, the problem is we can't agree on who they are. Christ says don't be concerned with that. Be concerned with the growth of the church. And I'll take care of that later. So remember, there's a big difference between a Christian struggling with sin. That's the other thing. How can you tell the difference between a Christian who's just struggling with sin, so he's making some wrong decisions, maybe some addictive behavior. How do you tell the difference between him and a true hypocrite? You, you can't. Only God knows the heart. And it's interesting that word hypocrite has such a negative connotation to us. That's because we grew up, you know, in a Christian culture. Initially, it comes from a Greek word that means pretender or actor. And so all the, the actors that were in the Greek tragedies, they wore masks, you know, they, depending on what role they were playing. And the masks were two-faced, so that one had a smile and one had a frown, and they could change, you know, their character at will. And they were called the hypocrites, which was not a negative term. They were the actors. They were the pretenders. Jesus made it a negative term in the Gospels when he started saying the Pharisees are hypocrites. They're like hypocrites in that they're pretending to be religious and good and their hearts are not. And so that word hypocrite, because of Jesus, came to be known as a very bad thing. Right? So... Again, who is among, among us is qualified to judge who's who or, or what's what? We're not. Uh, again, another example involving Billy Graham. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, there were three major evangelists traveling around America. And they were all popular. But two of them were viewed as the most outstanding, and one was kind of subject to criticism and trying to find his legs and popularity. The anticipation was that the two would end up being the best evangelists ever. Later, these two fell away and had scandals. I'll leave that to your imagination. But the one guy, the third guy remained, and he improved and he increased as God used him in a very mighty way. And of course, over the last 60 years, critics have been trying to find something wrong with this guy, and they never did. They investigated him a thousand times, and Billy Graham has always been genuine and true, right? But the appearances were in the beginning that these other guys were better than him. So we don't know. We've got to leave that up to God. And when the true wheat becomes ripe and heavy with grain, the whole plant bows down. In other words, the whole plant bends over from the weight of the grain, and it bows down. But the wheatgrass stands, not the wheatgrass, the ryegrass stands straight up, which is a pretty good image, you know, because you know, the humility of the real wheat versus the pride of the tares. And, of course, in the end, when Jesus comes, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So basically, the Bible says you can bow now or you can bow later. 
Take your pick. So look at the parable. He picks it back up in verse 36. In verse 36. So he gave this parable as somewhat cryptic. And notice also, uh, we're told, we're explained in verse 35 why he spoke in parables. Jesus spoke in parables so that was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And the prophet uh, in Psalm said, I, speaking for the Messiah, I will open my mouth in parables and will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So these things Jesus is teaching were unknown. They were mysteries up until now. They were brand new, right? And so Jesus explained them through the use of parables. And the people, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, that really didn't care, they never understood the parables. So they'd hear these stories and go, well, that was interesting, and they'd go off. But the true disciples, the believers, look what they did. Verse 36, he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came into him, saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And of course, this is what we do. This is why we come to Bible studies, why we go to church. We're hungry for the Word of God. We want to understand it. We want to know what God's will is for us. So we come seeking God's Word. And so Jesus explained it fully. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed, that's the Son of Man. That's his name for himself, his prophetic name for himself. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, the believers. And the tares are the sons of the evil one, the adversary, those who oppose God, oppose Christ. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, you know, the ultimate adversary of God. And the harvest is the end of the age, the end of this church age that we now live in when Christ comes back. And the reapers are the angels. So the angels of God will come and separate the good from the bad, the wheat from the tares. And therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. This is going to happen for real. It happened in the story, and it's going to happen for real. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness meaning the tares. And he will cast them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But on the other hand, here's the contrast, the righteous, the wheat, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. He always said that after one of these parables because it was like, this is important. Listen up. Wake up. Hear what is said. This is important. That's what Jesus was saying there. And so let me conclude with, with this. Naturally, if you're reading this, you're going to go, well, what's taking so long? <laughs> Why don't we just go ahead and have this harvest so we can get to the kingdom and all evil will end, be eradicated? Why can't we just get right to it? It's a good question. 
Why does God allow evil to continue on, seemingly unchecked? Well, that, that question is, I think, answered very well by Peter. In 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, The critics say nothing ever happens. God never intervenes. God never does anything. Where is he? If he's going to do this, why doesn't he do it? And so Peter says, I'll tell you why. The Lord is not slow about his promise. It's not like he's slow or he's delaying or he's doing anything wrong. Here it is. God is patient. God is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come who will come. So think of all the, the thousands in the world who are currently, probably today, there's thousands and thousands who are believing in Jesus as their Savior and being saved. And so, so God, God's telling Jesus, is telling them in the parable, hey, look, God is patient and waiting for all those people to come. I mean, just think about your uh, friends, your grandchildren, all these people. You want God to give time to come, right? So God is patient, giving them all the time in the world to come. And that's why the delay. And because of that, therefore, the Lord is allowing good and evil to coexist until all who will come, come. But there is an appointed time. There is an appointed time, we just read about it in the parable, in which Jesus is coming back and there will be a harvest. <laughs> and that harvest will be bad for the tares and it will be great for the wheat. And we look forward to it. And at that time, Revelation eleven fifteen will be fulfilled. You've heard this in a song, the Hallelujah Chorus. 11, Revelation eleven fifteen says, at that time when Christ comes back, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. I can't wait. We'll rejoice like that bear cub did when his mother showed up. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these parables and Jesus' explanation of them are so clear, and we praise you, Lord. It is, uh, it's baffling, and it's perplexing, all the trouble we have and all the problems we have to face. And, and, uh, but, Lord, we know you have a purpose in it. You're allowing it for a very real and important purpose so that people will come to you believing and join the kingdom and grow up in that kingdom awaiting that final harvest. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.